Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. So happy new year. Welcome to 2022, a year we hope that will be better than the previous two years, but we will have to take a wait-and-see approach on that one. This episode of the podcast, though, is about matters in 2021, specifically about the last few months of City Council before the Christmas break. You may recall that we recapped the meetings from January to July 2021 in episode number 286 of this podcast. Well, on this edition of the Guelph Politicast, we will cover September to December. So Council returned from summer break with the Committee of the Whole meeting on September 7th, and the quarterly update about the city's COVID-19 and pandemic response was the first report. Much of that report was a victory lap about Guelph's vaccination status, and Deputy CAO Colleen Clack-Bush then presented the corporate response by reviewing the city's plan to have vaccine mandates for staff and the preparations to participate in Ontario's vaccine certification program, which started on September 22nd. The discussion about the third-party trail agreement with the Guelph Hiking Trail Club managed to descend into a discussion about the purchase of Wellington Plaza per the Downtown Guelph Secondary Master Plan. Then there was the new business about licensing rules for payday loan businesses, and that passed rather swiftly, and so was the one item on the Audit Committee agenda for audit procedures reporting in the city's agreement with the Elliott community. The final item was the annual report from Our Energy Guelph and all the groundwork they've laid for the last two years to help Guelph reach net zero and 100% renewable by 2050. It was a good news report, but committee had probing questions about whether the 2050 deadline is still soon enough to make a difference, and why local developers are not working harder to help the city accomplish its goals. Members of the committee were also curious about OEG's financial future, but CEO Alex Chapman believed that they will be able to fund the office with service fees from the Residential Energy Retrofit Program, which should be starting soon. At September's planning meeting, there were a number of new zoning bylaw amendments, and the most controversial was a plan to build a row of five townhouses on a Bristol Street property. A dozen delegates spoke out against the project, and their grievances were many. Some objected to the character and design of the development, others said it was too much density on the property, others were concerned about the potential toxicity of the land, and some were concerned about the fact that this area was technically a floodplain. A few people also didn't take kindly to the developer having cut down 27 trees before they filed the paperwork for the project. There were many on council who took umbrage with the tree issue too, and though the developer didn't technically do anything wrong, council wondered if this was a case of using the letter of the law to defeat the spirit of the law. They reached the conclusion that the project was probably too tall, too dense, and was unlikely to offer any real affordable housing options as promised. In his last word on the matter, Mayor Cam Guthrie said that the developer has a problem with this project and should look to work with staff to make something more palatable before it comes back to council for a decision, and that report was received unanimously. An even bigger planning matter came to a special meeting of city council on September 22nd when staff presented the draft secondary plan for Claire Maltby, a highly consequential 1,300-page document that will determine how at least 16,000 people will make this area home over the next 30 years. 
After the staff presentation, there were five delegations that presented an even mix of options about the plan as presented. A couple of delegates thought there were still some big concerns about public space and the protection of sensitive environmental lands. Others thought that the plan took reasonable proactive steps to protect cultural heritage. And even one representative of an area developer said that with a few notable exceptions, she liked what the plan had laid out. Councillors had many esoteric concerns, including the cost of establishing the infrastructure in the area, the potential impact of the city's tax base, the cost of buying the requisite parkland and open space, including the marine ribbon, and the role of development charges, community benefit charges, and the parkland dedication bylaw. Even more specifically than that, some councillors were concerned about the details around the management of Hall's Pond and a proposed transit hub for the urban village. In the final analysis, at least one councillor, Ward 6 own Dominique O'Rourke, was concerned about putting too much pressure in terms of density and height along the 4km stretch of Gordon at Clare Maltby, and that perhaps the city was expecting too much from this one stretch of town. Some of her colleagues, though, disagreed and suggested that there might even be more room to create higher buildings and more density. There was also praise for staff on the comprehensive report and for the way that they've managed public feedback and helped it guide the process over the last few years. And that report was also received unanimously. The last meeting of September was deceptively brief. The most consequential action happened in camera. It started with a closed session that commenced at 5 p.m., and 90 minutes later, there was still some work to do when it was time to begin the open session. Council went back in camera before 7 and did not emerge again until nearly 8.30, and that was when the real fun began. The remaining matter in closed session had to do with an old stone farmhouse at 797 Victoria Road North, and it's, at the time, potential demolition under the Fire Protection and Prevention Act. The exact issue was unknown because it was all outlined in the closed meeting materials, but the recommended motion that came out of in-camera suggested that the farmhouse be carefully demolished while efforts would be made to hold on to key historically relevant features. Guelph's Minister of Heritage, Councillor Leanne Caron, made a last-minute case to try and preserve some majority portion of the farmhouse but it was apparently too far gone and was a clear and present danger to the public. Caron had some support to try and take some further action and preserve the farmhouse, but that motion to demolish was adopted by a vote of 8-5 to five by council, some of whom noted that their vote in favor was a reluctant one. A few days later, though, an announcement went out that Mayor Guthrie had called an emergency meeting of city council. The topic was that old farmhouse at 797 Victoria Road North and a potential vote to reconsider Monday's decision. Again, the reasons for the demo and the debate in closed session were still not known to the public as it was all debated in that closed session on Monday night. Essentially, Council's decision to remove the farmhouse as a potential fire hazard after two other buildings on the property burned down missed a vital step getting the sign-off from Heritage Guelph. CAO Scott Stewart later said that the lack of consultation was not an intentional slight or oversight to that committee, but a fulsome review of what happened will be coming back to Council at some point. So, Council went into another closed session for over an hour, and when it emerged, the motion to reconsider Monday's vote was put on the floor. 
A nine-vote majority was needed to reopen the motion, but with 11 people present, it was going to be a tough vote, and it failed 7-4. to four. But that was not the end. One week later, there was another emergency council meeting concerning issues around the demolition, as there was apparently some confusion about the motion to approve the suspension of the procedural bylaw at that September 30th meeting. In the version that was written out and displayed at the meeting, council would have only needed a simple majority to approve the motion to reconsider, but as explained by the clerk and the mayor, the motion needed a supermajority of nine to pass. Councillor Caron, who moved the motion, said that she was endorsing the former interpretation and not the latter. Some councillors who were absent from the September 30th emergency meeting were concerned that they did not have the information they needed to make an informed decision about what the minutes said exactly. Other councillors were visibly fed up revisiting this topic and said that they knew what it had been they had voted for the last week in September. Ultimately, the draft minutes of September 30th were confirmed by council by a vote of 7 to 5, and they ended up being ratified by city council at the end of October, but we will get to that shortly. Caron then had a separate motion asking for the staff report shared with council in closed session to be released to the general public with the legal advice redacted. The motion passed 10 to 2, with Councillor Dan Gibson being one of the no votes, saying that not including the legal advice only gives people half the story. The meeting ended 90 minutes after it began, with Mayor Guthrie noting that the entire predicament on this file has been, in his words, trying. The committee meeting for October went pretty in-depth on the subject of real estate assets. The focus for staff was the drill hall which needed more money and resources to stabilize than originally thought. Following the emergency demolition order for 797 Victoria Road North the week before, there was some concern about whether the city was doing everything it could to protect heritage assets. Councillor Caron led the discussion, asking staff about stopping further deterioration at these sites, and it's apparently a matter of limited financial resources. According to staff, they have to put money into assets that the city is currently using first. Whatever is left over, no matter how much, goes to those underutilized assets. That dynamic played out in the committee debate, with some people ready and willing to do more to preserve the drill hall, and others who balked at the 8 to $9 million in suggested cost to make the building habitable again. Staff did not have hard numbers on how much it would cost to make the drill hall ready for people to work in there, which is why staff are eager to get the stabilization itself finished and then find a community partner to guide and help fund further development. Staff said it was clear from the marketability survey that a Guelph community group will likely be entrusted with the future of the drill hall since private developers are only interested in the property and not the building itself. Heritage was top of mind again at October's planning meeting as the big item for the night was a request to demolish 239 Elizabeth Street. Although the home wasn't designated on the Heritage Registry, it was on the cooling list, which is a list of properties built before 1927 that the city basically keeps an eye on. The property owner wanted to tear down the current one-story cottage-style home and build a new three-story house, 
but Heritage Guelph wanted to designate the property, noting that it would be a significant part of a future Ward North Heritage District designation. Because 239 Elizabeth is on that cooling list, and because Heritage Guelph wanted to refuse the demolition application to designate, it became Council's responsibility to break the proverbial tie. And because of all the controversy around 797 to Victoria Road, it seemed likely that Council was going to go to extreme lengths and assure that due diligence was done. Included in the meeting was Heritage Guelph Chair P. Brian Skerritt, who appeared at the request of Council and explained that the committee's wish to designate was based on several different criteria. Heritage planner Stephen Robinson noted that the value of the building itself was also tied to the streetscape, and with a Heritage District designation for the area perhaps a decade away, the aesthetic of the streetscape could be lost over time by approving one demolition at a time. There was a clear divide on council between half of the group that wanted to recognize the property rights of the owner and the other half that wanted to be delicate about heritage given recent events. So the demolition request was refused by council in a slim 6-7 to seven vote. So what now? Well, council had to pass a motion to announce their intention to designate 239 Elizabeth Street. Chief Planner Crystal Walkie said that staff would have to generate criteria and that might require the outside input of a hired consultant. The motion to publish the notice passed by another 7-6 slim vote. DCAO of Corporate Services Trevor Lee called the October 18th workshop meeting an official kickoff of the 2022-2023 budget process. The key question of that workshop was how best Council can prioritize the needs of the city in that budget and then balance those needs with affordability. There was then some debate driven by Mayor Cam Guthrie about whether there should be a citywide survey completed before the budget process began so that Council could hear from the community directly, but it was agreed there just wasn't enough time to put something like that in effect. Councillors were then asked to appraise the five strategic plan priorities according to whether the city needs to do more, do less, or do the same on each issue. The majority agreed that there needs to be more done on the environment, securing community assets, and meeting community needs. General Manager of Finance Tara Baker then took council through the nuts and bolts of her staff's considerations in building the budget before Mayor Guthrie, who notably spent his birthday leading this meeting, proposed that council needed to start doing their homework because there were some big decisions ahead. More on that shortly. In another special meeting two nights later, council dug into highly controversial and incendiary topic of changes to the development charges by law. That might have been sarcasm. These reviews normally happen every five years, but there were four bills changing the rules passed by the provincial government over the last three years, and that prompted an earlier-than-anticipated review. There were essentially two major changes to the DCs, a new payment schedule for the various types of developments, and the elimination of the 10% mandatory reduction of DC calculations on so-called soft services like parks and libraries. The one delegate at the meeting, Susan Watson, a perennial council delegate, tried to convince council to take a broader look at the cost of growth and the potential need for a special DC for Claire Maltby, and she also registered her surprise that more people hadn't decided to delegate at this meeting. Treasurer Baker did say that the changes to the DCs would help close the gap between the cost of growth and what the city can charge, 
even if it doesn't completely close the gap. At the same time, the loss of the 10% mandatory cut for soft services meant that an additional 1.7 million of the cost of the new main library would be covered by DCs, and so could an additional 6 million for the South End Community Center. There was also a quick note on municipal parking, which DCs will no longer cover as of next September. Manager of Financial Strategy and Long-Term Planning Greg Clark noted that it was important for the city to have its community benefit charge policies in place by next September so that the city doesn't miss getting any of that funding. The new CBCs and the new Parkland Dedication Review should also be completed by the third quarter of 2022. 797 Victoria Road North returned to the proverbial front page at October's regular council meeting when Councillor Karan wanted to make the closed meeting minutes from September 27th and September 30th public, specifically the portions about the farmhouse demolition. Neither the clerk or the CAO or the city solicitor had a problem with that, but some on council did have reservations because of the potential precedent. Eventually, City Council approved the release of the closed meeting minutes, 11 to 2, but the back and forth took the better part of 20 minutes. After the in-camera portion of the meeting, Karan said that she still didn't think the minutes of September 30th were an accurate reflection of what happened, and voted against their approval along with four others. In terms of the minutes from the October 6th meeting, Karan objected to the commentary in the minutes detailing the mayor's point of view and the clerk's, but not her own. She asked that the color commentary from the minutes be expunged, which created another lengthy debate, but council overwhelmingly voted to amend the minutes in the end and pass them unanimously as amended. Meanwhile, one item on that agenda alluded to further future controversy. Councillor Gibson resigned his seat from the Downtown Guelph Business Association Board of Management, and Councillor Rodrigo Goller was voted in to assume that vacated seat. But the controversy happened when Mayor Cam Guthrie brought forward another motion to ask staff to report back in December with information on a governance review of the DGBA Board of Management and information about the process to survey DGBA members about a possible dissolution of the business improvement area. Some on council made the point that they were putting a lot of work on the month of December and that they didn't like the urgency this was being presented with. Other councillors pointed out that they were opening a kettle of fish because people would immediately react negatively to that word dissolution, despite Guthrie's assertion that he just wanted information. Eventually, the first part of the mayor's motion, the part asking for information about a governance review, was approved by council. The most contentious phase of the year at council began at November's Committee of the Whole meeting. This is where seven delegates came out to speak on the staff report about electronic ballot marking. These seven delegates, all of whom wanted electronic ballot marking, made a very persuasive case and kicked off hours of debate where a committee tried to find a way to make it happen despite any and every reservation held by the clerk's office about not having enough time to do it right in 2022. As laid out by City Clerk Stephen O'Brien, the problem was not money, but the expected workload. Before May 1st, the clerk's office would need to settle on a vendor, hire staff to oversee the testing and implementation, and to make sure everything's good to go for next fall. O'Brien also noted that there's considerable material to print off, and that may be a barrier to some people that want to use electronic ballot marking software. 
There's also a lot that the clerks have to do to launch mail-in voting, and then the Vote From Home program, not to mention all the regular election activities at the same time. Guthrie said that this was a matter of risk tolerance, and he was comfortable enough with all the risks to put a motion on the floor to direct staff to come up with an electronic ballot marking project for 2022 and to lay the groundwork for a permanent option in 2026. O'Brien worked caution because once committee directed staff to use electronic ballot marking, they would have to stick with it even if they found problems with the system after May 1st. CAO Stewart suggested that the committee was asking O'Brien for a lot of information that he didn't immediately have access to, and Councillor O'Rourke recommended that council pass a referral until the regular council meeting at the end of November, which was passed 10 to 3. There was also a presentation about increasing the digitization of City of Gulf services, a discussion around the bylaw regulations regarding the parking of recreational trailers, and a draft agreement between the city and the 10C shared space about taking over management of Guelph's farmer's market. Under the plan, 10C will enhance the farmer's market and its facility by turning it into a market hub and business incubator with community events, trade shows, food security initiatives, and community food programming. The draft plan was approved by committee with enthusiasm. The planning meeting in November had one item, and it was the draft version of the Comprehensive Zoning Bylaw Review. But as one city councillor pointed out, if you didn't know better, it might have been thought of as the Parking Bylaw Review. In one corner, there were councillors from newer areas of the city who were looking for some leeway to allow everyone to have a driveway where they can park two cars next to each other without breaking the rules. Some councillors said that their future support on the whole dang bylaw depended on making some changes. But there were others on council that made the argument that the city needs to be less car-centric and that it's unrealistic with 60,000 more people moving to town to purposefully make more room for cars. Others pointed out that there's a generation of young professionals coming up that are trying to avoid car ownership and that the city may inadvertently create a parking surplus in the near future. If there was one thing that everyone on council could agree on, it's that the city's team had developed a beautiful looking document that was easy to understand and simple to use. So it wasn't all bad news as council approved receipt of the draft. The new zoning bylaw will come back to City Council for a full statutory planning meeting and final passage sometime in 2022. If the planning meeting ended up about being parking, then it was a good thing that Council had a whole meeting about transit one week later. Staff presented the transit route review report to Council, and there was an in-depth discussion about the future of transit, what it might look like, and how best it might be implemented. After the staff presentation, there were nine delegations on the proposed plan, and they all fell under a couple of fairly broad themes. On the one hand, people were looking specifically at the present inadequacies of transit in terms of frequency, the total times it takes to take a cross-town trip, and the number of missed connections and transfers that endured. On the other hand, people felt that the staff-recommended plan wasn't ambitious enough, especially when considering the fight against climate change. Back at Council, the struggle was between how much Council wanted to do, how fast they wanted to do it, and how much it would cost in the process. Some in Council were dubious of the idea that high frequency could create the demand that Council and staff wanted, while other Councillors noted that repeated public feedback is pointing to a desire for that frequency 
and that the city should be answering the demand. There was also general agreement, though, that doing nothing was not an option. Council approved all the recommendations unanimously, even though many of them wanted to take the time to explore more thoroughly a high-frequency option. Unfortunately, with the budget just two weeks away, time was not on their side. There was also a motion from Councillor O'Rourke, who moved that staff should explore partnerships and grant opportunities to fund interregional transit before Guelph takes on any new routes itself starting in 2026, and that motion passed unanimously as well. The bylaw about the parking of recreational vehicles came back again at the regular council meeting on November 22nd. Two new delegations were concerned about potentially punitive moves in not letting people park their recreational vehicles in their own driveway, especially since there doesn't seem like much of an issue so long as people are parking those vehicles safely. Councillor Mark McKinnon brought forward a motion directing staff to come back to council in the second quarter of 2022 with an option to allow recreational vehicles and trailers to be parked in driveways under certain conditions and to align those options with the city's other yearly parking restrictions. There was some wordsmithing along the way, including a direction to staff to bring forward a more concrete definition of seasonal, and the motion also directs staff to look specifically at recreational trailers and not work trailers. Council approved the amended motion unanimously. Then there was the equally intense follow-up debate about proceeding with the electronic ballot marking plan for the 2022 municipal election. A memo from the clerk's office laid out again a list of reasons why they didn't have the time or resources necessary to implement an additional voting method before May, and during the council discussion, Clerk O'Brien said that it would take four or five months alone to follow the proper tendering process. There were six delegations, all of whom were returning from that month's Committee of the Whole meeting. They were once again urging council to move on making the election as accessible as possible, some had very serious and accusatory comments about the city's commitment to accessibility, given how the clerk picked the date to bring the report back and then said it was too late to act on it. Others noted that improved accessibility is an ongoing election promise that is never fulfilled by the time the next election comes around. Ultimately, the motion that committee cobbled together was scrapped in favor of the original staff recommendation after intense questioning by council there was an understanding that the time was working against staff in making electronic ballot marking a reality in this election and that they were being asked to put into effect a method of voting that the people in charge of running the election might not have confidence in. Along with the original staff recommendation, Council passed a supplementary motion to direct the clerk's office to investigate voting service enhancements for 2026 in consultation with the Accessibility Advisory Committee and to report back by the second quarter of 2024. Mayor Guthrie said he was disappointed that Council could not make it happen in time for next year, but he also thinks that Council and staff learned a lot from the conversation. On a different matter, Council passed a motion, along with the internal audit work plan, to reach out to the Guelph Police Services Board and look at bringing the police into the city's internal audit program. That brings us to the 2022-2023 budget, and for the second year in a row, Council gathered again around the virtual horseshoe for a morning meeting to discuss it. 
After reminders that the budget is the way for council to accelerate or decelerate strategic goal plans, CAO Scott Stewart outlined the challenges facing the horseshoe, including legislative changes, climate change, infrastructure needs, and the ongoing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The basic facts of the stakes with this year's budget almost immediately began to debate about the infrastructure renewal plan, specifically the use of funds from the dedicated infrastructure levy to hire more staff to oversee the city's backlog of projects. There was also some curiosity about the move to extend the levy out to 12 years thanks to funding from upper levels of government. Couldn't more funding further dilute the fiscal pain of the 10-year compounding levy? General Manager of Finance Tara Baker said that the budget is all about minimizing risk and just assuming that other governments will offer more money is actually too big a risk. Mayor Guthrie pointed to the elephant in the room. Would there be some fiscal prudence in delaying, even for a year, big infrastructure projects like the new main library and the South End Community Center? Greg Clark, manager of financial strategy and long-term planning, noted that staff are reevaluating projects as they are going out to tender, and they've already put some projects on pause because of costs, like the improvements to the Speedvale Bridge. Clark said that council has delayed those projects for other reasons over the years, but in many cases, the costs have only gone up. There was then some controversy about the Guelph Public Library and the Guelph Police Services budgets. For the library, the big controversy was the request to get $175,000 more to cover the loss from canceling late fees, and there was a lot of curiosity about the fundraising efforts for the new main building. To the police, there was some question to staff about the heads in beds levy, which isn't administered by the police, but as noted, it is a specific reference to policing costs around the university, like homecoming. The Grand River Conservation Authority CAO, Samantha Lawson, covered the timelines for provincially approved changes to the management of conservation authorities, basically the GRCA will have to return to council with the negotiated details about the services they'll provide, all organized in three different categories. What they have to do, what the municipality wants them to do, and what the conservation authority wants to provide in addition. This will be no mean feat, considering that there are 22 participating municipalities in the GRCA. Council was curious about the workload of heritage and whether there's enough or too much work waiting for the person that will be hired as the city's second of two heritage planners. We also learned that the city will be putting the old Imico property at 200 Beverly Street on the open market in Q1 2022. And before wrapping up, staff agreed to keep the budget board open for questions an extra couple of days than planned. Two days later, council heard from 17 delegates at the special night dedicated to hearing from the public about the 2022-2023 budget. Members of the Guelph Neighborhood Support Coalition spoke to their requested increase to the Community Benefit Agreement, and so did the executive director of the Guelph Humane Society. Representatives from the Guelph Community Health Center and Stonehenge Therapeutics spoke to the need for another year of funding for Welcoming Streets and the Court Support Worker, respectively. Kim Kusumano, the Executive Director of the People and Information Network, asked the city to continue funding police background checks for volunteers, 
and Toner Fung from Innovation Guelph and Chamber of Commerce CEO Shakiba Shiani both asked the city to continue supporting the business community as it tries to bounce back from the pandemic. Two people delegated for lower taxes, two others delegated for council to not delay the future construction of the new main library, and there were delegations from the president of the Guelph Hiking Trails Club and the chair of the Transit Action Alliance of Guelph. Two weeks later, on Budget Day, DCAO Lee and Mayor Guthrie began the meeting with a lot of lofty aspirations about the end goals, but the nitty-gritty of making the budget ground down council's pencils to the nub as they tried to answer community need while maintaining affordability. The first few motions were fairly predictable, approval to expand the community benefit agreements for the Neighborhood Support Coalition and the Humane Society, another motion approved an increase to the Paramedic Services Master Plan. Next, a motion was passed taking the next two years of the levy for improvements to Guelph General Hospital, a total of $1.5 million, out of the Tax Operating Contingency Reserve. Another motion funded the first two years of the Transit Route Review Strategy, which was an additional $3.5 million over the next two years. After that, Councillor Kathy Downer brought forward a pair of heritage-related motions. The hiring of a second heritage planner was passed rather smoothly, but the hiring of a consultant to review the cultural heritage plan and the cooling list caused a little more heartburn and was passed with a slim 7-6 majority. Next, Council debated the inclusion of a three-tiered affordable bus pilot proposed by Councillor McKinnon, which would offer a $4, $20, and $37.50 pass, depending on the need of the individual. Some on Council were concerned about introducing a new affordable pass at the same time Transit was doing a route review, but Council endorsed the pilot anyway. McKinnon next tried his hand at parking with a five-part motion that would increase the hourly rate from $2.18 to $2.66. Those are pre-HST fees. And it also increased the flat fee on Saturday, added a new flat fee to Sunday, increased event parking fees, and increased the permit cost 10% instead of the proposed five, but only the new hourly rate was approved. After that, there was a real bone of contention. McKinnon proposed cutting the library budget increase request by $175,000. Of course, everyone knew that this was the exact amount the library had asked for to cover the elimination of late fees, but council's technically not allowed to tell the library how it can spend money, just how much money they will be getting. When this fact was mentioned, Councillor Downer moved to amend the motion to $100,000, and that was approved 8 to 5. Later in the meeting, though, Downer said that she had been given new information and it made her want to take back that original motion. Instead, she proposed a new motion to add $99,999 back to the library budget, which was approved by a vote of 10 to 3. Councillor O'Rourke then proposed some motions that would stretch the time horizon for certain master plans, like the active transportation, cycling, urban forest trails, and open spaces plans, but she did not find enough votes that would support delay on those initiatives. There was interest, though, in shaving investments in digital and customer services, enough for another slim 7-6 vote. And there was also approval for reducing the transfer to the Growth Reserve Fund because those projects are still years away. 
From the desk of Mayor Guthrie, Council passed motions to approve co-op positions in the Planning Department to spread out $819,000 in revenue from the excess growth assessment over 2022 and 2023, and then another year's funding for the Court Support Worker and Welcoming Streets, plus another year covering the cost of volunteer checks and the creation of a Kids Ride Free Transit Pilot for young people aged 5 to 12, and that should start on March the 1st. Council also approved Councillor Christine Billings' motion to reduce the $500,000 transfer to the Efficiency, Innovation, and Opportunity Reserve for Service Rationalization Initiatives. Another $500,000 was found by reducing the transfer to the Contaminated Reserve Fund. By this point, it was around 10 o'clock, and Council seemed to have run out of motions. The levy increase was down to 4.21% for 2022 and 5. 17% for 2021, thanks to about $4.8 million in assistance from the reserve funds. The impact on the average household was expected to be $153 per year, or $13 per month. The vote on the amended budget recommendation passed 8-5 to five with Councillors Caron Gordon, Salisbury, Hoffland, Alt, Goller, Downer, and McKinnon all voting in favor, and the meeting was adjourned just before 10.30 p.m. At the last committee of the whole meeting of the year, there was another update about the city's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and at the time, there was still some hope that the state of emergency could be ended by the end of the year. Committee also approved a motion to allow businesses a bit of leeway in using mobile signs to advertise job openings, the intergovernmental priorities for 2022, and the urban design concepts for the draft York Road Elizabeth Street redevelopment were also passed. Then it was time for Councillors James Gordon and Leanne Caron's new motion for Climate Action 10 recommendations to reinvest Guelph's commitment to the city's Race to Zero program. And the debate started with over a dozen delegates. Everyone speaking to Council on this subject were unanimous. The city of Guelph needs to do more to fight climate change on a local level. And endorsing this slate of motions would be a great start. For committee's part, there was agreement that these were good motions, but the devil was in the details. Some were concerned about creating new reporting mechanisms that would interfere with other work that city staff currently had underway, while others were worried about making sure that the city was in a position to accomplish the goals in the motion before making any promises. That second point was the biggest source of friction as committee tried to avoid even the perception of delay. Staff tried to offer assurances that the work proposed in the motions did not deviate far from their original work plans. The only major difference was the addition of the more regular reporting periods. But the slate was just too complicated for one counselor who felt that the motion was a bit redundant if staff was already doing most of the work. Mayor Guthrie also noted that there seemed to be a disconnect between the public perception that the city was not acting on climate change and all the work the city was actually doing on the issue. The motions were passed near unanimously and unchanged after a few hours of robust debate. That left one final yet highly contentious issue on the table. There were about a dozen delegates who wanted to speak to that information report council had requested in October about reviewing the downtown business improvement area, and many of them had one thing on their mind, ending the Downtown Guelph Business Association. The accusations flew fast and furiously. Assertions that the DGBA does nothing for its members, how many 
business owners in the downtown don't know what it does or that they even pay for it, and that the organization is derelict in its responsibilities. Of course, there were some confusions about what those responsibilities are. The DGBA was blamed for not financially supporting businesses during the pandemic, and one delegate complained that the DGBA had done nothing to clean up empty storefronts on Upper Wyndham. Council received the report and passed an additional motion launching a third-party governance review of the DGBA with a deadline to report back to Council by June 2022. While there was some debate about whether or not it was wise to proceed when so many people had the foregone conclusion of disbanding the DGBA in mind, Council ended up agreeing that it was a better idea to do this review now before feelings of disgruntlement and obsession were allowed to fester for another year. That would change in a couple of weeks, but before that, there was the last planning meeting of the year, and that one clocked in at a more bite-sized 110 minutes. Council heard the statutory planning meeting to turn the old Holiday Inn Hotel and Conference Center into over 160 units of student housing. Council also heard the staff decision to approve a townhouse complex at 66 Duke Street and approved that at a vote of 10 to 3. The last council meeting of the year was mainly a rehash of the two big issues from Committee of the Whole. 16 delegates, many who delegated at committee, came back to speak again in favor of the Race to Zero motions, including several young people, undergrad and grad students at the U of G, high school students, and at least one 11-year-old birdwatcher. Many talked about their pessimistic thoughts that they were having about a dark future, but everyone hoped that council would stay the course on the motion and not water it down. Before the final vote, Councillor McKinnon moved to amend recommendation number four so that the setting of targets was in line with the 2023 budget breakdown that was promised in recommendation number 10. Many on council, though, did not like the sound of that and felt like the setting of targets was a separate matter from doing the budget math to achieve them. Also, since the 2023 budget won't be discussed until after the next council is elected in October, some members considered that an unacceptable delay and the amendment failed. The motion was ratified 12 to 1, with the exception of recommendation number 4, which was passed unanimously. As to the governance of the Downtown Guelph Business Association, there were five delegates here. Four were Downtown Guelph business owners who appeared to speak in favor of keeping the DGBA and there was one delegate who was just a downtown fan and wondered if our BIA was losing a step without more support from the city. After hearing the delegate, it seemed like there were no longer any support to go through with the third-party review of the DGBA. Guthrie proposed a motion, a different motion, to have the DGBA report back to council in their annual statement about how they responded to concerns raised in their recent survey, but the majority of council felt that was a little heavy-handed from a managerial perspective, and the vote failed. The one new matter discussed at the meeting was when council approved an application to the Ministry of Long-Term Care to expand the Elliott community by 29 beds. The exact details about the operational funding from the city will have to be worked out in the future, but the application to the province was due the next day. So council passed the motion, knowing that there would be some future discussions about those new beds, assuming the funding request is successful. And that was 2021 at Guelph City Council. What's next for 2022? I guess we will have to just wait and see. 
You can check out the previews, recaps, and post views for all of last year's council meetings under the City Council tab on Guelph Politico. You can also get Politico's City Council post views of the meetings sent directly to your inbox by subscribing to the tip sheet at guelphpolitico.substack.com. The next meeting of City Council is the Committee of the Whole on Monday, January 10 at 2 p.m. And you can see the preview of that meeting right now on Guelph Politico. But since my voice is running out, it's a good thing that it, this is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com if you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico. You can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we shall see you next time.